It's now clear that mortgage underwriting standards were too lax during the height of the housing boom. I was talking about that uh, just before um, the event started here today. Uh, while this is often attributed to fraud or lax supervision, one has to include in the equation the perverse effects of distorted incentives and moral hazard associated with the financial entities that were viewed as too big to fail, uh, both here and abroad. Uh, such institutions were prone to undervaluing, placing too little weight on the risks associated with mortgage lending, particularly the downside risks of a fairly large shock to the housing market. Their demand for mortgage-backed securities played a significant role in weakening lending standards, and that in turn played a significant role in driving the demand for housing, uh, which led to such uh, co the consequences we've seen, uh, the overbuilding we've seen. In the wake of widespread losses on mortgage lending, Underwriting standards have become significantly more conservative uh, since the height of the housing boom. And this is another factor restraining housing demand right now. We should expect, though, uh, credit terms to be tighter in most markets in a downturn because any given loan is going to look riskier in a weak economy and is going to really be riskier in a weak economy uh, than it is in a stronger economy. Moreover, the housing bust taught us that some innovative mortgage lending products were unprofitable without rapid home price appreciation. The housing bust also, also taught us that the risk of a broad, sustained fall in housing prices across the country uh, was much larger than we had believed before. Borrowers and lenders alike are now, much in much, now have a much greater appreciation, I think, for the economic risks associated with highly leveraged home ownership. In that light, a highly cautious attitude towards home ownership and mortgage debt, I think, makes abundant sense. For all those reasons, a lengthy adjustment process in housing seems inevitable. Population will growth will gradually absorb some of the vacant properties, and income growth will lead some households over time to move up to larger homes and will lead others over time to return to owning a second home, something that people have retreated from in the housing bust. Housing properties in less desirable locations uh, or needing extensive repairs may never be reoccupied. But apart from the imbalance in aggregate demand and supply of housing, the housing boom and bust has resulted in a substantial number of households for whom the home they occupy is a poor match for them in terms of affordability. While many of these cases of mismatch are being resolved voluntarily as people sell homes and move into smaller quarters or perhaps rental properties, many of these cases of mismatch are being resolved through the painful and time-consuming mortgage foreclosure process. And that is leading to further delays in the process of healing the housing market. Over time, we're going to see a better match between households and the homes that they want to own or rent. And in an increasing number of local markets, we will eventually see the overhang of vacant homes diminish to the point that significant construction increases are warranted. It's hard to predict just when these tipping points will be reached and when we will need uh, to build houses at a rate in line with population growth or growth in the number of households more specifically. But my sense is that uh, we are several years away uh, from such points. That said, we are seeing some bright spots in the housing sector. In many areas, rental vacancy rates have fallen, rents have increased, and as a result, construction of multifamily uh, rental units is rising, consistent with a broad shift away from uh, owner occupancy that we've seen in the wake of this bust. In fact, virtually all of the recovery in housing starts have been in multifamily units in the last two years. It's worth noting that home improvement spending is also on the rise, consistent with a dampened desire to trade up to larger houses. But even, we, even with these positive factors, uh, residential investment is now only 2.5% of, of GDP. That compares to over 6% of our economy devoted to residential construction at the height of the housing boom. So housing is still likely to contribute far less to overall economic growth than in past recoveries.
many of the factors holding back growth in this expansion can be traced to fallout uh, from the housing bust. The huge decline in housing prices from 2006 to 2009 erased a large portion of the home equity that households had accumulated during the boom. And in late 2008 and early 2009, households had another large chunk of wealth erased by a rapidly falling stock market. That's, this deterioration in their net worth gave consumers ample reason to rein in spending, pay down debt, and rebuild their balance sheets, uh, both in the recession and in the recovery that's followed. Consumer has, spending has been more sluggish in this recovery than in the typical recovery, rising at only a 2.1% annual rate since the end of the recession. Part of the explanation for this reduction in net worth, as I said, um, is this reduction in net worth, as I said, but more important has been the deterioration in labor market conditions. We lost over 8 million jobs on net during the recession and in, in its immediate aftermath. Since bottoming out in early 2010, as I said, we've added 3.5 million new jobs on net, but that's less than half of the way back towards uh, the employment uh, level that we attained in 2007. Uh, so we're far from fully recovering on that front. Moreover, hourly earnings have decelerated from gains at, a, at about a 4% uh, annual rate uh, from before the recession uh, to an annual rate of about 2% uh, right now. Thus, the weak labor market has held down wage and salary income, and this has hindered consumer spending growth as well. Other impediments to more rapid employment growth uh, is the, the extent of mismatch uh, between the skills of unemployed workers and the skills of uh, firms that the firms are seeking in the, the vacancies they have posted, what they're, what they're seeking to hire for, essentially. Recessions and recoveries always involve shifting resources to some extent or another uh, from declining industries to expanding industries in response to new technologies and shifts in demand away from some industries and towards others. Um, and expansions here are often not the mirror image of the contraction in terms of industrial composition uh, that preceded them. While many workers who lose jobs in the downturn will find jobs in newly expanding firms as the economy recovers, the search process that leads to those connections between unemployed workers and new jobs can be lengthy and it can require some significant training to make that match an effective one. The costs and the delays associated with reallocating workers to expanding industries can elevate unemployment for a time and can impede the, the rate of job growth. The extent of this type of skills mismatch is difficult to measure directly or with any precision. But my, but my reading, based both on the statistical research I've seen, and there's been a, a wealth of it in the last few years, um, both within the Federal Reserve System and outside the Federal Reserve System. Uh, my reading, based both on that statistical research and on our, our informal and more formal sort of contacts with businesses around our district, uh, district runs from Maryland down to South Carolina out to most of West Virginia, by the way, my sense is that, based on that information, is that mismatch is a significant factor uh, in labor market weakness we're seeing today. It's a significant factor restraining the pace at which we can take unemployed workers and find uh, good jobs for them. Fortunately, we have been seeing uh, some improvements in labor markets. Job growth has fluctuated from quarter to quarter and month to month, uh, as you'd expect, but overall, it appears to have accelerated as this expansion has gone on. In the first 18 months after employment bottomed out, we added 125,000 jobs per month on average. In the last seven months, uh, we've added around 190,000 jobs per month, a significant acceleration. This improved pace of job growth appears to be giving consumers more confidence in their future labor market prospects, leading them to loosen their purse strings a bit. And we are actually seeing evidence of that. Household spending rose at more than 3.5% at an annual rate uh, during the first three months of this year. And moreover, uh, that spending uh, that we have been seeing 
uh, has been strong in the in the new car and truck market. Uh, these are big ticket items and a willingness to, of consumers uh, to plunk down money and make a commitment to a, a big ticket item like that is further evidence of the confidence they have um, about their, their income prospects going forward. So far, I've discussed two impediments to growth that appear to, to be important today, namely the overbuilt housing market and a labor market mismatch. Another impediment to growth cited by many observers is the array of changes in tax and regulatory policies, both actual changes that have occurred uh, or and anticipated uh, changes that people view as likely to or, or, or potentially occurring. Uh, these changes can make it difficult for businesses and consumers, uh, but particularly for businesses, uh, makes it difficult for them to evaluate the, the profitability implications and really analyze the run the numbers and figure out um, what the, the implications of a given investment are going to be, either in capital or in a, a commitment to a hiring decision, uh, for example. We continue to hear widespread and persistent anecdotal reports from our, our contacts in the Fifth Federal Reserve District that new regulations and uncertainty about imminent regulatory changes um, are uh, discouraging businesses uh, from hiring or undertaking new investment projects. And while these sort of uh, uh, an, an, uh, anticipation effects, expectations effects, are really impossible to quantify with any precision, it seems plausible to me uh, that they could be noticeably lowering measured growth rates right now. In addition, I'd have to cite the dire federal budget outlook, uh, and I think that's also posing significant uncertainties for many consumers and businesses. As you all are no doubt aware, the path for federal deficit under the federal deficit under current law is simply not feasible. One way or another, like it or not, significant adjustments are going to have to occur. Marginal tax rates might increase. The tax base may expand, eliminating some deductions. Benefits and entitlement programs may be cut. Other government programs may be reduced or eliminated. These changes could be far-reaching and could affect a large part, if not all, of our population. Uncertainty about just where these adjustments will take place, where the axe might fall, if you will, uh, is likely to be discouraging hiring and spending, I think. For example, we hear that anticipated defense cuts are already affecting employment and investment in the Washington area, uh, as well as the business outlook down here in the defense-heavy region around uh, Norfolk. Uncertainty about what specific fiscal actions will be taken in coming years, I think, could well be impeding growth in our economy. These impediments to growth that I've mentioned are, not the, are, are important, but they're not the whole story. Um, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to go away with too gloomy a picture. I don't want to paint too gloomy a picture here. Um, I've been explaining these impediments of growth, um, you know, as I said in, at the outset, um, to give you a sense of why we shouldn't, we shouldn't be looking to monetary policy uh, to, to stimulate real growth too much further. Uh, and I'll, I'll get back to this in a minute. Uh, so what I want to do is talk about some of the brighter spots. One category of economic activity has been living up to our usual expectations of ro robust growth and a recovery, and that's business investment in equipment and software. This is our broadest measure of private sector investment, capital formation, apart from structures, buildings, and the like. Um, that category, business investment in equipment and software, rose at 14.6% in 2010 and another 10.4% over the course of 2011. Even with overall sales at businesses growing less rapidly than is typical in a recovery, firms continue to identify profitable opportunities to deploy capital goods to produce new products and services and to reduce costs and to improve business processes. And it really has been a bright spot for this economy. This suggests that we continue as an economy to reap the benefits of the underlying forces of creativity and innovation that have been what have really driven economic growth for the last two centuries in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, so I, I think it's, it's heartening that uh, that we're seeing that innovation uh, continue to take place and to show up in capital goods expenditures. <coughs> Excuse me. The trade sector has been another contributor to growth in this expansion. 
Exports, after adjusting for inflation, increased over 11% in 2010 and 6.5% in 2011, and prospects there remain bright. A large fraction of the world's population resides in countries that have relatively low household income but are growing relatively rapidly. In those emerging economies, firms are deploying capital rapidly to equip growing labor forces and thereby creating a strong demand for technology-intensive American investment goods. As these more productive workers are are moved into the middle class in their countries, uh, they will want to purchase a range of consumer goods that go along with membership in in the middle class and a lot of those consumer goods they'll get from the United States, everything from sodas to video games to movies and the like. So I expect export growth to continue to add to overall economic activity uh, over the near term. So considering all these factors together and trying to add it all up and form a picture of the economic outlook, I come back to the improvement we've seen in the labor market recently. Most forecasters are expecting job gains to continue Uh, this year. And that seems reasonable to me. I think it should generate noticeable improvements in consumer income and spending. And I think that those improvements in consumer income and spending should nudge GDP growth uh, higher over the next couple of years as well. Um, That will add further to employment growth and that will add further to consumer confidence and uh, willingness of consumers to increase spending. I see this process gradually lifting GDP growth over the next two to three years. Um, And what I've written down, I I mentioned this yesterday, uh, for this year is two and three quarters percent, and I I see GDP growth rising to over three percent in 2014. So this mildly, cautiously optimistic forecast, I'd call it, uh, comes with several caveats, as all forecasts should. The impediments to growth that I mentioned are still exerting a drag on activity, and that's going to keep growth from being uh, as uh, robust as we would like, likely. In addition, this forecast allows for a mild recession in Europe, the recession that they're actually going through right now. But many European countries have not yet adopted credible policies that achieve long-run fiscal balance. Uh, Until they do, some further turbulence and a deeper recession uh, there can't be ruled out, and that could dampen growth here as well, uh, should that break out. And finally, I should mention that my forecast incorporates just a minor risk of any large discontinuous fiscal adjustments by our own government. So no central banker's outlook for the economy would be complete without a forecast of inflation. Last year, we were reminded that inflation can rise even in the face of elevated unemployment. This goes to the the Nehru uh, seminar that we got uh, a few moments ago. In 2010, the inflation rate was 1.3%, but it it then more than doubled to 2.7% last year, even though the unemployment rate averaged 9% last year. Despite that run-up, I believe that the inflation outlook is reasonably good right now. Uh, The most recent reading we have is 2.1% on a year-over-year basis. Uh, That's for the month of, uh, I think it would be the month of March. While gasoline prices pushed up the overall inflation rate uh, late last year and earlier this year for a couple of months, gasoline prices have fallen in recent weeks. And if you look at the futures markets for crude petroleum and and the like, uh, they're pointing to further declines in uh, gasoline prices later this year. More important, in my view, for the inflation outlook is that the public's expectations about future inflation um, have remained well anchored over this time period. Uh, They've stayed within the range. Those measures have stayed within the ranges that we've seen over the last several years. Much of that stability can be attributed, I believe, to the Federal Reserve's consistent pursuit of monetary policy that keeps inflation low and stable. Over the past 19 years, inflation has fluctuated around an average of about 2%. In January of this year, the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, took a step forward by announcing that its specific goal for inflation is 2% uh, annual growth in the price index for personal consumption expenditures. This is the the price index that's methodologically most preferred uh, by uh, Oh, nine out of ten economists, would that be the way to say it? Uh, adopting this goal 
should eliminate any lingering doubt about the FOMC's commitment to price stability. And it should ensure accountability for the Federal Reserve System, since it will be obvious how actual inflation differs from our objective, now that we've been very explicit about our objective. While inflation can fluctuate from quarter to quarter, over time, inflation is the direct result of monetary policy, and the Federal Reserve should be held accountable for inflation outcomes. Speaking of monetary policy, some of you may have noticed uh, that in all three FOMC meetings this year, I have cast a dissenting vote on the committee's monetary policy decision. Uh, in each case, uh, so I want to take a moment or two and explain my vote to you. Uh, in each case, I objected to a phrase contained in the press release following the meeting. A very important phrase, not just any phrase. So as background, um, before last August's meeting, the August 2011 meeting, before that, our press release contained the following uh, statement. The committee currently anticipates that economic conditions, and then it lists a bunch of things, are likely to warrant exceptionally low interest, low levels for the federal funds rate for an extended period. The, so the committee currently anticipates that economic conditions are likely to warrant exceptionally low levels for the federal funds rate for an extended period. An extended period means a long time, but it's not specific about how long. Um, this came to be known, this phrase came to be known as our forward guidance language. So it's the language that we provide in an attempt to uh, inform the public about our outlook about how policy is likely to be set as the economic data come in. So given how we think data is coming in and how we think we're likely to react, our sense is that we're going to keep interest rates low for an extended period. That was, that was our formulation back then. And, I, you know, I think that makes sense. You want people to have a sense. You know, we want to be able to share with, with the public our sense of, of, of what policy is likely to do. So you help you form expectations. So, so uh, the public doesn't have any more uncertainty than they need to about policy. At our meeting last August, we changed that language. We, we took out the last four words for an extended period, and we put in their place at least through mid-2013. So this was an innovation. Uh, this was more specific, calendar-based way of providing forward guidance. Then in January of this year, the FOMC voted to change that date to late 2014. Now, it's important to recognize that our forward guidance language is a forecast of how monetary policy will turn out. It's not an unconditional promise or an unconditional commitment, or an unconditional pledge. Future monetary policy decisions will depend on future economic data and on what the outlook, the economic outlook, will, is going to be in the future. Um, as new data arrives, the outlook for future economic conditions will change, and the outlook for future monetary policy should change as well. Now, I dissented in January because I did not believe that statement, I, that that wasn't consistent with my own projection. Um, I didn't think that economic conditions were likely to warrant low interest rates all the way through 2014. And by the way, I'm a voting member this year. I rotate um, and I vote every three years. Um, the, there are 17 of us who attend federal open market committee meetings, uh, but only 10 of us vote. Five um, current members of the Board of Governors always vote. Uh, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York always votes. And then the remaining four votes are rotated among the other presidents of the Federal Reserve Banks, uh, the other 11 presidents. There's 12 Federal Reserve Banks. Um, so we, we go to these meetings and, you know, if you had a videotape of the meeting, you wouldn't be able to figure out who was voting until the very end uh, when we called the roll because we all, uh, we all participate in the discussion about economic conditions. We all participate in the discussion about economic policy as well. Um, but voting is a special responsibility. Take it very seriously. So I dissented in January. This is my first opportunity to vote on this calendar-based forward guidance language. My projection is that if we want to keep inflation uh, around 2%, not exactly 2%, but uh, uh, arguably near it, we will need to raise rates in 2013. That would be my forecast, if you asked. And that's far enough different, that's significantly enough different from the committee's assessment that I thought it warranted a dissent. 
Now, incoming data could change my assessment in either direction. Weaker data could lead me to push out my projection, and stronger data could lead me to advance my pr projection. I've continued to dissent against that language since then because my projection continues to differ significantly from the committee's. Now, it may seem strange to talk about raising rates when much of the chatter in financial markets uh, seems to be about the possibility of easing monetary policy, not tightening it. In my view, it would be quite hard to justify additional monetary stimulus absent a dramatic deterioration in economic conditions, which I do not view as, as likely. There are shrill voices out there crying for drastic increases in monetary stimulus as long as measured unemployment is so high. But the impediments to growth that I've, I've discussed with you at some length today are all quite real. And I use that word real in a certain specific sense. They are all things that the force that they're, they're all factors for which monetary policy is not the right remedy. Monetary policy will not occupy vacant homes or give unemployed workers the skills to fill vacant jobs or reduce regulatory or fiscal uncertainty. Moreover, we should not be discouraging households uh, from the recalibration and readjustment, reconfiguration of their balance sheets um, and restoring those to, to, to healthy order. Policy, monetary policy is quite accommodative uh, still. Additional easing is unlikely to have a much of a positive effect on growth, um, but could well generate sustained uh, surge in inflation pressures that would be costly to reverse. But as I said, my outlook now uh, is for 2% uh, inflation, and that's consistent with the FOMC's now official uh, articulated goal. And I'm pleased that we've come through this challenging period uh, with our commitment to price stability intact and uh, with the achievement of price stability intact. I recognize, though, uh, that sustaining that achievement may require some difficult decisions uh, in the months and years ahead. That concludes my prepared remarks today. Um, and if there's time, I'd be happy to take any questions. Is there time, Dean? Do we? Yeah, that's a really good question. I get that a lot. So um, monetary base, for, for, uh, for those of you who haven't sat in on that um, seminar from the dean, um, is the amount of money that the central bank supplies to the economy. Now, that's, that's to be distinguished from the amount of money that the banking system supplies to the economy. That has a different name, M2. Uh, but let's focus on the monetary base. So that consists of currency, the hand-to-hand, -hand, the paper currency you guys walk around with, and coins and the reserves that the banking system holds with us, essentially the banking system's checking accounts with the Federal Reserve System. That amount has skyrocketed. It used to be about a trillion dollars uh, through mid-2008, and now it's um, above two and a half, I think 2.6, somewhere in, in that name, neighborhood. So it's more, much more than doubled um, in, in the course of this, um, this the, the contraction and, and uh, the, the, the recovery. So th we've, we've done that in part to provide stimulus by buying assets and increasing the supply of those reserves. We put downward pressure on other interest rates. And the reason we do that is because when we drive interest rates all the way down to virtually zero, now the federal funds rate is about 13 basis points. When we drive interest rates that low, the way to get further stimulus is to increase the supply of money forcing people to hold it. Forcing them to hold it means, well, the yields on other things have to go down to make them voluntarily hold it at a, at a low interest rate. So we, by increasing the supply of the monetary base, we can drive down other longer-term interest rates and provide a little more further stimulus to the economy. Just how much, hard to get a handle on. There's models where it's nil, models where it's large. So it raises the risk of inflation because as, we've all, as we all know and have all been taught, uh, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. That is to say you need uh, money supply increases in order to generate inflation. But not all money supply increases generate inflation. And this is a case, this is one of those exceptions. <coughs> if we supplied more money uh, than was being demanded at current interest rates, we, we would be 
providing an inflationary impetus. But that hasn't been the case so far. Uh, the demand for liquidity by the banking system has been very large. Uh, in response to the crisis, we've been, uh, as regulators, both here and abroad, um, pushing our institutions, and we've pushed very hard and have made a lot of progress, uh, to, to make them hold much more by way of liquid assets and to issue much less by way of liquid liabilities so that they're less vulnerable to financial markets suddenly losing confidence in them. And as a result, the demand by banks for liquid reserves like uh, we offer in our, our accounts um, has gone up tremendously. We're going to need to be vigilant, though, in this period where um, the economy is picking up steam to, be, to, to sort of pull down the supply of money when the demand for money subsides a bit. Because um, if we don't do that, we, we could ignite inflationary pressures. Inflationary pressures often emerge at this point in the business cycle after the recovery's proceeded away and things pick up steam. So it's, it's going to be a delicate balance. But so far, um, we, we haven't seen inflation pressures emerge from the increase in the monetary base that we've seen. Good question. So the, the questioner is, is referring is uh, let me give you a little background. Um, question has to do with individual um, participants in the FOMC meetings and our views about when interest rates are likely to rise. Um, one of the things that we did in January, in addition to change the language to late 2014, uh, was adopt a new practice. So for a couple of years now, um, each member at four of the eight meetings a year, each participant in the FOMC meeting is asked to submit their economic projections for real GDP growth, the unemployment rate at year end, um, for inflation, um, overall inflation and core inflation for the next three years. In January, and we've been, and we release those um, after those four meetings. We call them the summary of economic projections, and it's at the end of the minutes, four meetings a year. What we did in January was add to that routine a request that participants submit what they believe the federal funds rate will be at the end of each year for the next three years. And we published that. So in January, if you go through the go on the website, you'll find a dot picture that has a dot for, you know, in each year it's got a dot for what the, that FOMC, for what each FOMC participant thinks the Fed funds rate is going to be at the end of that year. And you can see that there's a range of views. Some people uh, in January thought rates would be low through 2015 or 16. Others thought they'd rise. There are a couple that think rates are going to rise by the end of the year this year, some next year, and, and so on. The committee's decision, though, reflected in its statement, is a, a different thing. First of all, it represents the committee, not all 17 participants. It just represents the views of the 10 committee members because um, they're the only ones who get to vote on the statement. Um, but it represents an, sort of an official work consensus view. Um, and, uh, you know, one, as one might expect, if, you, if there's a certain hurdle, and if, you, if your views don't differ largely from the, the, the view proposed, you, you might be willing to go along, even though you might, if asked, split hairs and, and want to, uh, you know, a slightly earlier date or slightly uh, later date. Uh, so that, that date in the, in the committee statement is an official committee view. Uh, the fact that there are diverse views about the outlook, uh, both for growth and inflation, and for the outlook about interest rates shouldn't be a surprise to market participants. Um, I think that the diversity of views shows that we all take this exercise. We all take our jobs, our responsibility to the American people very, very seriously. Uh, and we bring independent views to bear on this. We exchange views. We listen to our colleagues. Um, I think the financial markets have for years wrestled with more and more transparency into the thinking of various committee members. And I think that's strengthened public understanding of the FOMC's deliberations rather than weakened it. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, so the you know the question for those you might not have heard it has to do with this, um, you know, kind of the balance within the housing market between multifamily and single family. Are you? I, I take it. I'm, I'm guessing. Just wild guess. You're in the housing industry. You're working for. Oh. Okay. Um, so there's a couple of different margins. So um, you can choose to live in a detached single family home and you can choose to live in a multifamily home, right? Multifamily structure, right? Um, but there's a separate choice as to tenure. You can choose to own a single family home or you can choose to rent a single family home. Or you can choose to rent a multifamily unit, or you can own it, like a condominium, right? So there's, there's sort of two different margins going on here. And um, you know, the economics of it are that the, there's a, a huge oversupply of, of single-family detached housing. Um, a lot of that's coming through banks. It's owned by banks being put on the market um, through the, the you know, foreclosure process and the like. Um, investors are coming in and trying to get some traction and figure out a business model to make a portfolio of single-family detached housing uh, offered as rental units, make that an, uh, economically effective and viable against the option of rental units and multifamily units. So that's, that's kind of this key margin. And um, it's unclear how that's going to work out. I mean, at a, at a low enough price for the housing, it's going to work out, right? So in part, that might be why we've gotten some, you know, some fluctuations in housing prices and sort of a little downward drift in the last couple of years since the, the huge fall in housing prices. Housing, seemed to, housing prices seem to hit a bottom, and then, and then there's been a little downward drift. I think maybe they're not quite into alignment. And a lot of this has to do with some subtle things. Like, I mean, think about you own a bunch of housing units, and you want to do an effective job, you know, you want, economically you want to offer them for rent, you know, multifamily has this advantage. They're all in the same building. It's easy, it's kind of easy to get around among them and fix them, you know, when toilets go, go bad. But, you know, you got single family detached towns all spread all over a county. The economics of the maintenance part of the equation maybe get different. Now, whether that's, you know, a major factor or not, I don't know, but I think that's important in the economics of sort of rental, the rental side of the housing market. Where that shakes out, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I think part of that equation of rental versus owning a single family home is going to have to do with mortgage lending terms. And I think we've, I think we've saw that for various reasons, we dramatically overshot in the, in the direction of leniency. And I'm, we're never going to get back. We're never going to, I don't think we're ever going to see in our lifetimes terms like we saw in some places and products, financial products like we saw in 2005. Um, so there, we likely overdid single family detached building because that was generally associated with ownership. Now, if with ownership sort of permanently lower than we, the peak we reached, we're going to have single family detached that are kind of, there aren't enough owners to go around for them. So they're, they're going to have to find some Rental life as rental properties, uh, one way or another. Um, so I think the, the economics will work themselves out, but it's a question of kind of at what price. Hope that was informative. A little, little nice seminar in housing market. Yes, sir. a really good question. Um, so the question has to do with um, how, uh, uh, how to protect uh, U.S. financial institutions from uh, financial, financial problems in Europe. So the, the, we've, <clears throat> from the very beginning of, um, uh, you know, the appearance of, uh, you know, issues in Europe, um, we, we went out and we've, we've, we have uh, on ongo an ongoing basis monitor the direct exposure of the U.S. financial institutions to European financial institutions, and that's very manageable, um, uh, you know, well understood, I think, and well measured. Um, and I, I, I don't think that poses a threat to any of our institutions. Um, they had had not had large exposures; they had managed those exposures down in the wake of what happened in 2008. 
Um, so it, it got to be a, man, a, a manageable, something of manageable proportions. I think if you're going to look for um, fallout in the U.S. financial system of problems in Europe, the place to look is in um, is in uh, uh, short-term funding markets, money markets. And here I'd point to money market mutual funds um, who, uh, in the U.S., U.S. money market mutual funds have substantial exposure to European banks. Um, now, as, as the events have unfolded last year, uh, many money market mutual funds dramatically reduced their exposure to particular countries' banks um, as, as conditions have changed, but there still is a substantial uh, exposure of money market mutual funds um, to, to European institutions. And, um, you know, if, if, if there's going to be a spillover, that, that would be my guess as to the most likely um, avenue by which there's spillover to U.S. financial markets. Um, and I, I don't see that affecting large U.S. financial intermediaries directly, but the, the, the money market mutual funds that, um, would be a particular nexus of concern. Um, so the question is about uh, the sort of increasing transparency with uh, the Fed. So the transparency that we've um, So let me make a couple comments. I'm not quite sure specifically. Transparency covers a broad range of things on the Federal Reserve. Um, and uh, let me make some comments about transparency generally and then maybe try and see if I can narrow in on, on what you're interested in. So we did a lot of dramatic things in 2008. Um, for all the controversy about what we did, both those you know, inside the Fed and outside the Fed who supported it, who were against things that we did, have various views, all recognize that when, when we lend money, uh, we are putting taxpayer funds at risk. And, and the way it works is we, we have an, a balance sheet. I, just, I talked about the money, the liabilities we supply uh, to, for the public to hold and for the banking sector to hold, but backing that are assets. And until this crisis, those assets were virtually all U.S. Treasury securities. And when we lend to someone like Bear Stearns, we would sell a U.S. government security to make room for it on our portfolio. That, in essence, is fiscal policy. And, and if we take a loss on, on any of our exposures to anybody we lend to, that loss flows through to taxpayers because our net income after expenses is remitted to the Treasury. So we're acutely aware that, that when we do lending, we're doing fiscal policy in a very real sense. Um, that comes with an obligation, uh, an, an obligation of accountability and responsibility. And um, we realized very early on in 2008 that we, uh, after the crisis in two, late 2008, that we owed uh, American people all the information we could provide about it. And so the, the chairman, uh, Chairman Bernanke, directed uh, Vice Chairman at that time, Don Cohn, um, to uh, pursue an initiative to scour what we were doing and what we knew and, and what was on, what information we had. And the presumption was to be disclosure. The, presu the, the, the presumption was to be that, you know, if there's any question, err on the side of disclosing it. So we have provided an incredible array of information about our balance sheet. We already publish our balance sheet every Thursday afternoon. We publish Wednesday's balance sheet Thursday afternoon for all 12 reserve banks and on a consolidated basis, every week within 24 hours. I mean, and this is a 2.6 trillion or whatever dollar portfolio. So we've, we've tried to bend over backwards to make information accessible to the public. At times, um, there have been some who said, well, you could go further and release this or that. But we've, we've gotten to a good place, I think. Now, there's a, a separate matter. So let me, let me tie this to audit the Fed. I mean, this has been sort of an issue with, uh, you know, politically, that people claim we're sort of a secretive organization. We are audited every which way to Sunday, I think would be a, a vernacular way to put it. Uh, we have an independent 
auditor, just like a corporation does. Deloitte and Touche audits every Federal Reserve Bank. The Board of Governors reviews the operations of every Federal Reserve Bank. The GAO has been auditing us for decades. Uh, at any given time, there's a dozen or two GAO audits underway at any, at any one time. Um, so the, the idea that we're not audited is, is just simply false and misleading. Um, what we've strived to do is uh, be careful about mon our monetary policy independence. Um, and uh, I, I could say more about that. So the other aspect of transparency that some people talk about is the fact that participants in the process, members of the FOMC, often are speaking in public like I am today and explaining their views to people. Um, so used to be maybe 20, 30 years ago, um, there was people were less forthcoming about what their views about policy were. In fact, it was the practice not to virtually to virtually say nothing about policy. Um, I think we're in a much healthier place now. I think understanding the nature of the tensions, the nature of the ambiguity about the situation, the nature of scientific uncertainty about the conduct of policy and how the economy is behaving, understanding the range of views, understanding the challenges we're facing, I think that's good. And I don't think we should be afraid of it. So my guess is you were asking something about that. Now, it does mean that you have to think about what you hear. I'm not trotted out to provide some, you know, the Federal Reserve line about something. So if you hear what I say, you, financial markets may have to weigh that against what they hear some other president say or some other governor say. But I think if you look at it as a whole, I don't think we tend to confuse people. I think we tend to enlighten more than we confuse. So is that get at the kind of things you were thinking about? No, I can see the I can see the opportunity for confusion. Um, and uh, for confusion to be exploited for, uh, you know, sort of dogmatic uh, reasons, uh, you know, by some groups. But I, I, just instinctually, um, I tilt towards more information, more education, uh, more transparency being better. And so I, I think ultimately that'll, uh, that'll lead to better understanding rather than less. So, uh, but we can debate this some more later. Thank you.